All right, this is going to be the 16th lesson in our early church study from the book of Acts. The title for our message is Growing Pains and Gains. Growing Pains and Gains, and we'll be looking at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Okay, would you bow your heads with me? Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Help us, Father. As we come before your presence to have a focus on what you have to say to us this morning, to put away all the distractions of life and the worries of life and focus on what your spirit wants to teach to each of us individually. Help us to have a passion, an ever-increasing deep passion for you and for your son, the Prince of Life, our Lord and Savior, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and that we might also have a passion for your infallible word. May we honor you this morning by our exposition of your words and by our teachable spirits and by what I hope is our one accord desire to be ever learning how we might live and speak and even die so as to bring you the glory you so rightly deserve. We know, Father, that we cannot do this on our own. In fact, we can do nothing apart from you. We are a needy people. We need your grace. We need your strength. We need your wisdom. We need it every single moment of every day. And help us in these perilous times to look beyond the enemies, and beyond the obstacles and the problems and the perils, to see the Savior who died for us and who now sits at your right hand awaiting the moment when he will soon return for his bride. And we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now we pray that he will be lifted up in this lesson today, for we do pray in his name. Amen. To this point in our study of the early life of the church, we have learned of two types of threats that were meant to deter to disrupt, and if it were possible, but it isn't, to destroy the continuing work of the resurrected Lord Jesus through his spiritual body on earth, the church. Satan, you know, is very much the hateful adversary of the church as he is also the hateful adversary of Christ. And ultimately, you do know that it is Satan who is behind all the enmity that Christianity has ever encountered and is still encountering to this day, even probably worse in this century than at any time in her history. Christians are being persecuted and killed today. The one behind all of it is none other than Satan. In Acts chapter 4, we learned of the first occasion of physical persecution against the church that came directly from enemies without, enemies outside the church. And those enemies were religious rulers, the same ones who Jesus said directly to their faces, ye are of your father, who? The devil. And in the first part of Acts 5, now in Acts 4, we had the first physical persecution against the church. Then in Acts 5, we had the first occasion of a moral disruption that came from within the church. The result of the enemy's successful temptation of a man on a man and his wife. 
Ananias and Sapphira. And these are the types of disruptions and distractions and hindrances that the church could expect to encounter throughout her history. Remember that the book of Acts is just the history of one generation of believers, that first generation of believers. And really what it was giving to us was a pattern of prophetic church history. What that generation experienced, the church throughout her history could likewise experience. So we are knowing ahead of time that we can expect physical persecution and we can expect moral disruptions from within the body of Christ. Well, now, as we come to Acts chapter 6, we find yet a third way the work of the church can expect to be distracted from her primary purpose. And it really is the saddest one of the three because it comes in the form of a social disruption between believers. For the first time since the birth of the church, In Acts chapter 2, the wonderful oneness of the body of believers is broken. You know how we've been hearing about how they're in one accord, one accord of one heart and one soul? Well, now we find that oneness broken. For the first time, we read about division among the people of God. Unfortunately, this third form of disruption has done more damage to the testimony of the church and the work of the church than anything else. Fussing and feuding between believers and church splits have been a horrible, absolutely horrible witness to the watching world. Would you not agree? It has also done more damage to the primary work of the church by distracting church leaders from giving. Look at verse 4. I'll read it in a minute when I read the passage, but look at verse 4. What are church leaders supposed to be doing? Well, we know because the apostles said what their primary work was to be was giving themselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. When a pastor's time is filled up with a whole range of other things, such as settling disputes between believers, murmurings going on in the church that he has to deal with, petty little discrepancies and all kinds of counseling, you know, things that pull him away from his prayer time and from his study time. When that happens, his entire church is cheated. Do you know that? They are cheated. Because a healthy, growing church is the result of a pastor who feeds his flock the deep truths of God's word. And it takes time to do that. It does. It takes a lot of time to dig for those rich, deep truths and to present them in a way that you pull the whole scripture together so your people get it from cover to cover. It's all interrelated. And Christ is exalted. And it takes time to meditate about the passage that you're going to present to your congregation. You need to be like a cow, you know, and chew on it and meditate over it. And what else? You need to pray over it so that when you present it to your people, you are doing so with a spirit-filled anointing. All of that takes time. Pastors need their time alone with the Lord and with the scripture. And when there's so many little murmurings going on in the church that it distracts him, the church itself is is cheated. 
Now, in our last lesson, we discussed how the Jewish Sanhedrin Council had listened to the advice of one of their own highly respected, highly esteemed council members, a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel. And his advice was essentially to wait and see what would happen with the followers of Jesus. If that movement, if that sect of the Nazarene, they're not calling it Christianity yet, if that movement was not of God, what would happen? It would soon fizzle out. That was what he was saying. You know, it would burn itself out, as had happened with several other former would-be messiahs. After all, he was essentially saying to the council, you know, Jesus was dead. So what kind of threat can a dead man be? We'll just give it a little time and this whole thing will go away. <laughs> but that was where Gamaliel was very, very wrong, wasn't he? Thutis and Judas of Galilee may have been dead, and yes, their followers in time just, you know, scattered away. But where he was wrong was assuming that Jesus was dead. Jesus was not dead, and the difference was his disciples, his followers knew it. They absolutely knew he was not dead because they had seen him firsthand resurrected alive from the grave. Now, what we don't know is how much time elapsed between Acts 5.42, the last verse of chapter 5, and the first verse of chapter 6. You see that white space in your Bible? <laughs> Maybe it even says chapter 6 there. We don't know how much time elapsed there. It could have been as much as a year. We're not sure. Um, but what we do know is that much to the displeasure of the Sanhedrin, the growth of the sect of the Nazarene did not dwindle as they had hoped would be the case after they listened to Gamaliel's little speech. Nor had the imprisonment and the threats and even the beating of the apostles succeeded in silencing them or even chasing them out of the city. What had we read the apostles did after they received that beating of the 39 lashes? Look at verse 42 of chapter 5. What did they do? They went daily right out into the public, right where they had been arrested. Peter and John three times had been arrested there in the temple. The others had been arrested there twice, but they didn't go underground. They went right out into the public in the temple, and then they went in every house having meetings in houses, prayer meetings and discipleship classes and celebrating the Lord's Supper. And they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. They were bold, weren't they? They were really bold. They knew that they needed to please God. They needed to obey God rather than man. And the, the result was the exact opposite of what the council had hoped for. They had hoped that their persecution would just, you know, get rid of this. The result is actually given to us in the first verse of chapter 6. The result was that the number of the disciples of Jesus multiplied. Multiplied. Well... With the growth by multiplication, not, it's not by addition anymore, it's by multiplication. With growth by multiplication comes what? Growing pains, growing pains. More potential problems arise whenever bigger numbers of people are involved. Why is that? Well, because people, <laughs> even people in the church, are sinners. 
Sinners saved by grace. And the more sinners saved by grace you put together, the more potential problems you have because a lot of old man baggage comes with those people into the church, doesn't it? Unfortunately. <laughs> so with growth, there are growing pains. And with growth, there's always the need to make adjustments. There is a need for leaders to wisely delegate the workload of the ministry with others who are spiritually qualified. Just as Moses had to learn, Moses thought he could do it all, and he had millions of people with him, you know, following him in the wilderness. But he thought initially that he could single-handedly do it all, but he had to learn a lesson given to him by his father-in-law. We'll talk about that later. As he had discovered that lesson, so also the apostles discovered that they could not and should not attend to all the multifaceted aspects of the ministry. The church now is in the thousands. We don't know how many, but it's up there in the thousands. Fortunately, these men, these 12 apostles, were spirit-filled men. They had been Christ-taught, and they handled the first threat to the beautiful unity of the church with great God-given wisdom. So that's going to be the subject matter of our lesson today. As we look at verses 1 to 7, we have just a real simple two-point outline. First of all, we're going to look at what was the first problem. Well, it had to do with widows. They felt that they were being slighted. So we're going to look at slighted widows in the first four verses and then seven workers in the last four verses. So let's begin by looking at the problem of these slighted widows, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 6. It says, And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring. You know what that word is in Greek? Sounds just like murmuring. I mean, not the English word murmuring, but it sounds, it's like an onomatopoeia. It's gongusmos. I mean, you throw a goose in there and it sound, sounds kind of like murmuring, right? Gongusmos. Yeah, quacking or whatever. Whatever. Geese honk. They don't quack, they honk. So honking was going on, and you know where the honking was coming from? Uh oh. Grecians. <laughs> There arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Now that word ministration, you see that word? It comes from the word, word, root word deacon, deaconia. It's where we get the word deacon. They felt like they were being neglected in the daily deaconing, ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Exactly the same word as ministration, the konia, that we should deacon tables. Verse 3, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business of taking care of the widows, deaconing the widows and the tables. But we, now here's their rock-solid commitment, they know what they're supposed to do, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Interestingly, the word ministry there, the ministry of the word, is also the konia. 
Three times in those four verses we have the word that we would say deacon. So this is why many say that the seven men chosen here were the first deacons of the church. Now they're not called deacons here, but what the work that they're assigned to do is the work of a deacon serving. Okay, Well, as with the situation concerning Ananias and Sapphira, the church has an internal matter of concern. Isn't it sad that two of the three disruptions and distractions and hindrances of the church that we have seen in Acts 4, Acts 5, and Acts 6, two of the three come from within the church. That's very sad. This time, the potential crisis involved two whole segments of the church rather than just two people, a man and his wife. There was murmuring coming from the Grecian Jews against the Hebrew Jews. The Grecian Jews, and I'll explain who they were in a minute, but they felt that their widows were being neglected in their care, in their daily provisions. Now there were a basic there were basically two geographical categories of Jewish society at that time, which really is true today, because just like then, you have Jews who lived in the Gentile lands, and you had Jews who lived in the, in the land of Israel, have the same thing today, don't we? Jewish people who live in Israel and Jewish people who live in the Gentile lands. That's what was happening that, then. There were Jewish, the Jewish people of the diaspora, those Jewish people who lived in Gentile lands and not only spoke the particular language of that land, but they also spoke the common language, the universal language at that time, which was not English, it was what? Greek, it was Greek, so they spoke Greek. And Luke, who himself was a Greek, he was a Greek. He wasn't a Jew. He was a real Greek. He referred to them as Grecians, the Grecians here. And the reason he did that, even though they were Jewish, they weren't Greek like me, okay, and like Luke. They were Jewish, but he referred to them as Grecians because they spoke Greek and not Hebrew. They were Jewish, but they didn't speak Hebrew. They probably knew just enough Hebrew to get by, you know, when they went to Jerusalem and went to the temple or something. But in their synagogues, when they met in their synagogues in their various Gentile lands, do you know what Old Testament they used? They didn't really know Hebrew anymore. So they had, the, the Old Testament had been translated into Greek, and it's called the Septuagint, and that's what they used in their synagogues in Gentile lands. So they're referred to as Grecian Jews. They're Jewish. They're Grecian. Um, and as I said, they probably knew enough Hebrew just to get by. They were, they were more tolerant of the Greek and Roman culture of their native lands than were the Hebrew Jews, the Jews who lived in Israel, were born and lived in Israel. But they remained faithful to their faith. You know, this all happened back when Israel was carried into captivity in Babylon. And then 70 years later, when they were allowed to leave, there was only like 42,000 of them that returned to the land of Israel and rebuilt the, the temple and, and Jerusalem and everything. The rest of the Jews, a lot of them stayed in Babylon, and then others went into other lands. So that's what began the diaspora. So that's why you had Jews living in all kinds of different places. Um, but they did, the Jews that went to other lands did maintain their faith, their, their faith in the true God. They only married other Jew, you know, 
Jews, Jewish people, so they kept together as a, as a people. Now, the, the Grecian Jews in this particular passage were also believers in who? Who did they put their faith in? Jesus Christ. So, so we really could call them Grecian Jewish Christians. That's confusing, but that's exactly what they were. And we've already met such a man who was a Grecian Jewish Christian. His name was Barnabas. Remember, he was not from the land of Israel. He was from the island of Cyprus. So he was a Greek-speaking Jew who had become a Christian. Now, the Hebrew Jews, Luke calls them the Hebrews here. On the other hand, they were the ones who lived in Israel. Maybe they, their parents had moved to a Gentile land, but they decided they wanted to move to Israel, and they moved to Israel, and, or others were born in Israel. You know, but they were, they were Jewish people who lived in the land, and their mother tongue was Hebrew. Many of them, especially around the area of Jerusalem, also knew how to speak Aramaic. Aramaic is the purest, the purer form of Hebrew. I think Aramaic is going to be the, the language of heaven, personally. I believe it was the language that Adam and Eve spoke. But uh, they likely, the Hebrew Jews likely knew some Greek just to get by, and maybe even some of them knew a little Latin, because Latin was the language of the Romans, although the Romans also knew Greek because it was the common language of, of, of that time. But what kind of Bible did the Hebrew Jews use in their synagogues and also, of course, in the temple? They used the original Hebrew Old Testament. All right, now, of course, the Hebrews in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, just like the Grecian Jews of the Diaspora, were believers. They had come to put their faith in Jesus Christ, so they were what we could call Hebrew Jewish Christians. Now, in general, the Hebrew Jews were less tolerant of the Gentile world. Many of them, and this was due to the Pharisees, the Pharisees were really snobby about um, Grecian Jews because they thought anybody who was Jewish and lived in a, a Gentile land was living in a defiled land. So they had this real snobby attitude toward Grecian Jews. They, all, they even looked at them as second-class Jews because of that. You know, if you were really righteous, you'd speak Hebrew and you would come live in the land. So you know who addresses that issue, that snobby issue about the land? Stephen, in his sermon that we're going to be looking at for several weeks, probably until our break. He has a wonderful sermon, and he addresses that issue. But really, the, uh, the, the Hebrew Jews looked at the Grecian Jews as second-class Jews, which was bad because these people were all believers, aren't they? They're all believers. All that should be put behind them, but... What happens? We carry our baggage right with us into the church. Sadly, although the people of Acts 6-1 were all Jewish believers in Jesus, all indwelt by one spirit, one and the same spirit, yet some of the cultural tension that had existed for hundreds of years raised its ugly head in this first occasion of disunity in the church. And... Has, as has often been the case ever since, this little thing that set off the murmuring and the first division in the church was something rather insignificant.
Isn't that often the way it is? It started out with some small matter. You know, some widows murmuring about other widows that we're not getting the treatment that they're getting. But it certainly wasn't worth a church split, let's say it that way. (laughs) But that might have been what would have happened if the apostles hadn't been so godly and so spirit-filled. The Grecian Jews might have gone off and started their own church, and the Hebrew Jews started their, you know, the first and second church of Jerusalem. (laughs) Could have been the situation. You know, the only church that exists so far in the book of Acts, the only church, local church, and at the same time it's now the universal church, the only church is the church at Jerusalem. That's it so far. There aren't other churches in the, in the world. So why, we want to ask the question, why were there so many Grecian Jews in Jerusalem at this time when their homes were all you know, over the place? Their homes were in other lands. Well, remember, as I'm sure you do, that the Jewish people of the diaspora came to Jerusalem to celebrate what? The Jewish feasts. Many of them had come on the Feast of Pentecost. Well, they had come for the Passover when Jesus died, and they stayed for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They stayed for the Feast of First Fruits, which was a week long. And some of them even hung around till 50 days later when it was the Feast of Pentecost. If they were going to make that kind of trip, they'd stay for all four of the spring feasts. And we know that um, on the Feast of Pentecost, the one that followed right after Jesus's. Uh, Uh, death and his resurrection some 3,000 devout Jews were added to that to the church on the very day of her birth her birthday 3,000 Jews and many of those 3,000 added to the church were not native born Israelis they were Grecian Jews who were utterly shocked and amazed when they heard Hebrew Jews which all, you know, the apostles were, and even the 120, they were all Hebrew Jews, and from Galilee of all places. The Grecian Jews were shocked when they heard these Hebrew Jews speaking to them in their own native tongues, not just Greek, the common language of the day, but in their own native tongues and even dialects. Many of those new Christian Grecian Jews Then, after they became believers in Jesus, what did they decide to do? They decided to remain in Jerusalem for a while so that they could be discipled by the apostles and learn more about Jesus. Who knew knew Jesus better than the apostles? So they wanted to be discipled, and they wanted to um, know more about how they could go back to their native countries and speak about Jesus using the Old Testament scriptures to support his claims to being actually their Messiah. So they stayed around. And by this time in the book of Acts, now we may actually be like two years out from Jesus' death. Do you know that? By the time we get to Acts chapter 6. At least one year or two years out from his death. And so what does that mean? Well, that means that the fall feasts have already also occurred, which would bring more Jews from the diaspora into Jerusalem. And what were the apostles doing on a daily basis? They were in the temple preaching and speaking about Jesus. So more Gentile, uh, not Gentile, Grecian Jews were hearing about Jesus and coming to faith and then staying in Jerusalem. By this point in time, we've probably had the four spring feasts all over again. 
and then maybe even the fall feast. We don't know, but there could have been several cycles, and there's an ever-growing flow of Grecian Jews coming into Jerusalem and getting saved, believing that Jesus was their Messiah. So that is why there were so many not only Hebrew Jews from the land in Jerusalem, but also so many Grecian Jews in Jerusalem. Um, but what explains why there were so many Grecian Jewish widows in the city? You wouldn't think that widows would venture that far from their native lands, would you? I mean, it wasn't required at all for women to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for several of the feasts that were mandatory. It was mandatory for Jewish men, but it was not for women. And oftentimes the women would stay at home in their native country, you know, and they'd keep the small children. It was harder for women to travel if they had children. They'd stay home. They'd take care of the children and the home place, and they would take care of the elderly. So why would you think there'd be uh, widows? They're not going to make that trip all by themselves. Well, you know, with, they always went in a caravan, but you wouldn't think that many widows would be in Jerusalem. Well, I discovered something in my study this week, and this is what it was. It was common practice for elderly Jewish couples, whether, whether they lived in Israel, like up in Galilee, you know, or somewhere else in Israel, not Jerusalem, and also elderly couples that lived in the diaspora. It was common practice for them to want to go and live in Jerusalem for their final years. You know how people like to retire to Pinehurst so they can play golf for the rest of their life? <laughs> I, I live near Pinehurst and I've never played golf in my life. Never. Putt-putt, yes, but not golf. But so that's what they kind of like, you know, wanted to retire to the holy city. You know why? Because they wanted to die there so they could be buried there because they knew that that is where the Messiah one day was going to set up his kingdom and rule from the city of Jerusalem. So that makes sense. Now, because men often married women a lot younger than them, and because generally speaking, men do die before women, there were a lot of Grecian widows and Hebrew widow, widows in the city of Jerusalem. And most of them, by and large, most of them were rather poor. Now, the law of Moses had instructed the Jewish people to provide for their widows. And this practice, of course, carried over into the early church because what are most of the people in the early church? They're Jewish, and so they're taking care of their widows. Now, later on, Paul, the Apostle Paul, will be inspired to also tell the church, yes, that we too are to provide for widows. He makes it a little more specific. Of course, if they have a family, the family is supposed to care for them. And then he even says that the church is to care for widows over 60 so if you're under 60 and you're a widow, you're on your own. <laughs> but he does, you know, we are the church, you know, especially a widow who's in, who's in need. Well, the uh, one accord unity of the church, we learned, was so wonderful that believers were actually sell, willingly selling property and their possessions so that everyone's needs were being taken care of, including, of course, the widow's. And this made the adversary not happy. He, the adversary, Satan, was not at all pleased with the unity of the church. He loves, he specializes in bringing discord. 
That's his whole thing. He loves to cause discord and division. It started long ago when he caused division between the angels and God, and even between the ranks of the angels, when one-third followed in his rebellion against God and two-thirds didn't. And then when he plummeted to earth, he again caused division, didn't he? Between man and God, and between man and wife, and then between brother and brother, Cain killing Abel. And he loves, he loves to cause division between nations and even within nations. He loves to cause division between races and even within races. He loves to cause division and discord um, by making social classes, which is what this was about. You know, the Hebrew Jews thinking that they were superior to the Grecian Jews. He likes to have classes uh, divided and marriages and families, and most especially, he loves to bring discord into the church. He also does his best to discourage the leaders of the church and to distract them from their main task of feeding the flock, the word of God. Furthermore, Satan loves it when people use the discrimination card. He loves that. Whether true or not, the Grecians began murmuring against the Hebrews, saying that their widows were being discriminated against. For whatever reason, the Grecian widows felt they were not being taken care of as much as the Hebrew widows were. And I don't know where this all started. Maybe there was one little widow sitting there, and I laughed yesterday. I said, I don't know why I always say little widow. Why do I do that? Is it because we shrink with age or something? I don't know. <laughs> but one little widow, maybe Grecian widow, looked over and saw a little Hebrew widow get an extra piece of bread. Maybe that's where it all started and she murmured, you know. But it only takes a spark to get a fire going, right? <laughs> Doesn't take much. And, of course, word eventually got to the ears of the apostles. And when it did, they wisely determined to do what the Lord himself had done with Ananias and Sapphira. And no, I don't mean drop dead all the widows. (laughs) Take care of that problem. (laughs) They decided they would nip it in the bud, all right? The corporate witness of the entire church could be jeopardized over this one seemingly small situation. You see, if the outside of the church Jewish people saw no difference in the inside of the church Jewish people, if the unsaved saw the saved being prejudiced and divided and critical and fussy and contentious, what would be the appeal to listen to their message? Oh, they're no different than all the rest of us, right? If the salt has lost its saltiness, what is it good for? Nothing, nothing. Remember Jesus had told his followers that if the world was going to know that they were his disciples, what were they to do? They were to have love one for another. So the spirit-led 
Praise the Lord for these godly men. The Spirit led, and they're different folks than they were, right? <laughs> In our 11-year study of the life of Christ, they're completely different men than they would have been before this. But now they're Spirit-filled, they're Spirit-led, and they chose. This was so wise. I just commend them for everything they did to handle this situation. They chose to involve the whole church in the solving of this problem. They involved the whole church to make an important decision. Apparently, a suggested remedy to the situation was that the apostles themselves handle the ministry to the widows so that everybody would feel like, okay, it's being handled correctly. Everybody is getting treated equally. Now, think about it. We know that the apostles were already in charge of the distribution of the charitable proceeds because where did Barnabas and Ananias bring the money from the sale of their land and put it? Where did they put it? They put it at the feet of the apostles. So we know they were in charge of the distribution of the money. They were also preaching daily in the temple. And they were also meeting daily in homes for probably prayer meetings and the Lord's Supper, which originally they were having every day. They would be in charge of the Lord's Supper and they would be having discipleship classes. What else were they doing? They were performing signs and wonders and healing many people. Remember, the streets of Jerusalem were even lined with people. These were very busy guys. In fact, it was uh, the workload was getting to the dangerous point for them because it was to the point where it could distract them from their God-given commission. So after calling the multitude of disciples unto them, which is what it says in verse 2, the apostles told the people, the whole church, they told them it would not be reasonable for them to leave, which is actually the word neglect. It would not be reasonable for them to neglect the word of God in order to deacon tables, to serve tables. Now, the Greek word that is translated reason in verse 2 kind of reads funny in the King James, but it actually means pleasing. It would not be pleasing or it would not be acceptable for them to leave the deaconing of the word in order to deacon the tables. Their response to the widow issue, the widow issue, was that it would not be pleasing, not be acceptable for them to neglect the word in order to do this other thing. And this brings us to the question, to whom would it not be pleasing or acceptable? To them? To them? I mean, did they think that it was beneath their dignity to serve tables? No. Uh, We'll talk about that in a little minute. In a little minute. (laughs) Or were they saying it wouldn't be pleasing to the widows, acceptable to the widows? Because after all, the, the apostles were all Hebrew Jewish Christians, right? And the ones complaining were the Grecian widow Christians. Maybe they would still feel slighted. Or would it not be pleasing, a pleasing solution for the entire church? Well, the people of the church would probably be happy if the apostles did this and then, you know, just took care of the situation and knew that everybody would be treated fairly. But, unfortunately, in the long run, although initially it would make the people happy, in the long run, it would not be for their own good. 
Why is that? Because they would burn out their leaders, the ones who had known the Lord most intimately and were best prepared to speak and teach of him. It's not good to have your leaders, your pastors, burning their candle at both ends. The entire church would suffer in the spiritual realm if the apostles' time was being consumed with the distribution of funds and the ministering of tables to ensure equal treatment of all the widows. My um, back of my earring just fell out. <laughs> you see, the one they were talking about who wouldn't be pleased, the one to whom it would not be acceptable for them, the apostles, to serve tables at the risk of neglecting the word of God was, I heard you say it at the very beginning, God, the resurrected Lord Jesus. And it was not because it was beneath their dignity to do so. That wasn't it at all. The Lord had taught his men the importance of being servants. He had given them that lesson in living color, hadn't he? When he got down on his knees and he washed their feet. They got that. They understood that as the church leaders, they were to be the greatest servants of all and to put the needs of others before themselves. But they also knew that their primary assignment was to be his compulsive witnesses. Ye will be my witnesses, he had said to them. The resurrected Lord had told them that they would prove their love for him by doing what? feeding the flock that was entrusted to them, nurturing the lambs and the sheep with not physical bread, not serving bread to the widows, but with the spiritual bread of the word. They knew, the apostles knew, that the spiritual needs of the church, spiritual needs, were their first and their foremost responsibility. You see, it was a matter of calling. It was a matter of their calling. They had been called to the ministry, the deaconing of the word of God, which centers on Jesus Christ. In verse 4, when the apostles said, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word, the word for ministry, as I told you before, is diakonia, translated as serve back in verse 2, with regard to serving the tables. So there is a deaconing of the tables, and there is also a deaconing of the word. And it's not a question of one being inferior to the other, because both are absolutely necessary for a healthy, growing church. It is a matter of two different ministries, demanding different people with different gifts and different assignments based on those spiritual gifts. You see, the larger threat to the church than a neglected ministry to widows would have been a neglected ministry of the word, which centers on the Lord. The apostles were to be the foundation stones for the church. They had a, an important position. Jesus had not only hand-picked each and every one of them, but he had very patiently taught them and groomed them. Remember how patient he was with them because they just weren't getting things? It wasn't connecting. The wires were disconnected, and he was His whole three and a half years of earthly ministry were all about preparing these men. 
His whole ministry was to teach them how to preach him to a lost and dying world. They had known him better than anyone. It would not please him at all if they were to neglect the duty of speaking and teaching about him in order to deacon tables. So what the 12 had said to the Sanhedrin council, in essence, they also say now to the church. We are not able not to speak the things which we have seen and heard. Remember that back in chapter 4, verse 20? Essentially, they're saying the same thing now to the church. To start serving tables and to make sure that everyone in the church was being treated equally and to start, you know, counseling sessions and, and uh, dealing with all the murmuring issues and the other little petty things that arrive um, would be falling into the trap of the adversary because it would be getting them off focus from their primary assignment. That had been the whole point behind the threats and the imprisonment and the beating that they had encountered from the religious rulers. It was to get them to desist from the ministration of the word, to get them to neither speak nor teach about Jesus. Now, Satan, has, he has other ways. He has, he has an other, other ways to accomplish his goal. So he slipped into his slippery serpent costume, you know, he took off the roaring lion costume, and now he kind of dresses up as maybe even an angel of light. He has ways to accomplish his goal to keep preachers and to keep church leaders and teachers, Sunday school teachers and Bible study teachers and missionaries and evangelists. He knows how to keep them so busy with good things. Because serving others is definitely a good thing, isn't it? It's a good thing. He knows how to keep them so busy with good things, but it takes them away from their divine assignment. This temptation, you see, is much more subtle, isn't it? Much more subtle than just outward persecution. Um, because it's an internal mat matter. This is, a, this is a family matter. This was something that was happening within the family of God. And of all people, it concerned little widows and big widows. <laughs> little and big widows. Now, this is not to say at all that the ministering of tables it was not necessary. It was absolutely necessary. It is necessary. Um, but the apostles could not do it. That's the whole thing. The apostles could not do it. There were other people in the church who could do the ministering of the table. They would just simply burn out if they were trying to do it all, um, especially with now the ministry in the thousands. They needed to, what's the word? Delegate. They needed to delegate the workload. How many pastors today are so busy with secondary ministries that they are failing to spend needful time in prayer and in the study of the scripture. How many? Far, far too many. Now is that because, is that the people's fault in their church? Is that the fault of the congregation? Or is that the fault of the pastor? because of his philosophy of ministry. Hmm. 
interesting to think about. I should have had that one of your homework questions. See, a lack of good, you know what, it is easier to do the deaconing of the tables. And a lot of pastors fall into that and the visitation and all that because it is actually easier to glue, you know, it's hard to glue your back to the back of the chair and sit there and pray and study. That's hard. It's all hard. I'm so glad I'm not a pastor. I am so glad I'm not a pastor. But a lack of good, solid Bible teaching by prepared, prayerful pastors is a formula for even more problems to arise in the family of God. Do you know that? When people are not fed the rich meat of God's word and they don't get the whole picture of the scripture, you know, they don't see that common red thread that flows from Genesis to Revelation, how it's all Christ-centered, and they don't get it because they hear here one week and there the other week, and they just, you know, it's not coming together for them, and they're not getting the deep truths that are in there because it's hard to dig and find them. When, when they're just sipping continuously on pablum, on milk, 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 week after week, what happens to the people? They remain babies. They remain spiritual babes, exactly. And where does a lot of the whining and the crying and the mine, 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 and all the little trivial things come from? All the immature things come from the babes. So you know what? It was wise, very wise of these men, the apostles, to say no to taking on another task. Now, this is going to be hard for some of you, but I'm going to say it anyway. I know you're women, and so this is going to be difficult, but it is not always right to say yes to everything you are asked to do, even in the church. Some people don't understand me when I say, no, I can't do that, no. My husband says, don't worry about it if they don't understand it, Catherine. You know what you need to do, and got to keep the focus. You got to keep the focus. It was also, that was wise that they said no. It was also wise that they did not assign blame on anyone in this situation. You notice they didn't shake their fingers at those Grecian widows and say, shame on you for murmuring. And they didn't shake their finger at the Hebrew servers and said, well, you're neglecting these women. Why? Have you got that prejudice problem? What's the matter with you? They didn't blame anyone here. The third wise thing they did was to make the people of the church part of the solution. That was good. That was wise. They had a spirit-filled church, which was good, because the church chose very wisely. They asked them, the church, to choose among them seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Spirit, and also what did they want them full of? Wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? The world? No. They needed to be wise from the scriptures. And they could be appointed to the task of deaconing with them in the ministry. This was good. This was really good. I'm so proud of these men. Because this tells us they did not have the idea that things just wouldn't get done right unless they did them. Hmm? (laughs) To their credit, they resisted that type of thinking, which really is akin to setting themselves up as little gods over their flock. 
You know, I can't delegate the workload because otherwise it won't get done right. If I don't do it, I have to do it. They didn't do that. That was wise. Perhaps the Spirit reminded the apostles of how Moses himself, we talked about this earlier, had tried to do everything himself. And his father-in-law, Jethro, you know, not from the Beverly Hillbillies, Jethro, but (laughs) his father-in-law gave him some good advice when he said, I'm going to just read this from Exodus 18. This is what Jethro said to Moses. The thing you do is not good, Moses. You will surely wear away both you and this people that is with you, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to perform it yourself alone. You shall teach them. What was Moses' assignment? Teach. You shall teach them ordinances and, and laws and shall show them the way wherein they shall walk and the work that they must do. Moreover, you shall provide out of all the people, here's the qualifications, able men such as fear God. Remember how we talked about how important that is? Men of truth. Isn't that interesting? Because when the apostles said to look for seven men, the first thing they said was honest. And here again we say, see, men of truth. And then uh, Jethro also said, uh, hating covetousness, not covetous men, and place them over such. Good advice. When you look at verse 3, did you notice that the apostles did not ask the congregation to look for men with good business skills? Good administration skills? I mean, that would be an added bonus, but that's not what he asked for. They asked for. They didn't ask them to look for wealthy men, just in case they ran out of money, and they could use some of their own wealth to provide the bread for the widows. Or, you know, if we have a new building program, they'll probably chip in a bunch. They didn't ask for them to have a good educational background. Look for men that have been to the right rabbinical schools. They didn't ask for them to look for men that had a great sense of humor. You know, could tell a lot of jokes and make the widows happy instead of murmuring. (laughs) Have all the little and big widows laughing a lot. They didn't say to look for, for men that had a great personality. Those are all pluses, aren't they? But that's not what they said to look for in choosing the seven deacons. You see, if there is one institution on the face of this earth that should know how to properly choose its leaders on the basis of Christian character and spiritual maturity, it is the church. The church of all institutions should know how to pick its leaders, spiritual godly men. When a local church is choosing its leaders, it should not be nearly as concerned with their management skills as with whether or not they are honest, spirit-filled, and wise. Wise in the scriptures. They are to be men of integrity, above reproach. Honesty. Honesty was mentioned in both these qualifications, back in the Old Testament, here in the New Testament. Honesty is very, very important in the leaders of the church. These chosen servants were going to be dealing with large amounts of money that had been given voluntarily. So the apostles recognized that it was needful for the men they selected to have sterling character. It was also wise that they asked for seven such men. 
perfect number, right? Because that not only divided the workload, but with seven handling the money and the distribution of goods, it put financial matters above suspicion. And it took away the temptation, if there was just one man or two, to misappropriate funds. In verse 4, now we have the rock-solid commitment of the apostles when they tell the people, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They were publicly making that commitment to be holy. And actually it says in the Greek, we will give our strength over to prayer and the ministry of the word. They were saying that they were going to be wholly given over to prayer and to pouring themselves into the study of the Old Testament scripture. You know, some of those men would actually be used to write some of the New Testament. Their decision to bring on board others to assist in the ministry not only gave the opportunity for the seven men who were selected to grow in their service of the Lord Jesus, but also to receive the blessings that come from being involved in ministry. You know, when, the more people that are brought into the ministry of the church, the more people that are blessed. And, the, and then they get connected better. And, and you know, there's just a, and that's what the body's supposed to be doing, right? Working together. Also, this was wise because it freed up, freed up the apostles to spend their time doing what they should have been doing all along, you know, prayer and pre preparation for teaching and preaching. So in every way, the church was enriched by this decision. Well, the idea of the apostles to allow them to choose, to allow the congregation to choose seven men among them, it says, pleased the whole multitude. Everybody, even all the widows, were pleased with this decision. And that's exactly what they did. So let's look at the seven workers, verses 5 to 7. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, whose name is Stephanos in Greek, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. I have that highlighted. It gets me so excited when I think about priests, a great company of the priests. The people carefully selected seven men who the apostles then set apart for ministry as they laid their hands on them and they prayed for them. What they were doing was identifying themselves with these men as their co-workers in the ministry of serving the Lord. They were testifying that they were giving their approval for these men to function on their behalf and on behalf of the entire church. Now, when we look at the list of the seven men who were chosen, we find something very, very interesting, which is why I read their names the way I did. Do you notice something about their names? Every single one of those men had a Greek name. Stephen too, Stephanos, means a crown. Even though the Hebrew Christians would have been in the majority 
Yet all seven were Grecian Jewish Christians. You see, this was a tremendously gracious gesture on behalf of the Hebrew Jews. Because essentially, I mean, the vote could have been something like three Hebrew Hebrews and four Grecians, or four Hebrews and three Grecians, right? Isn't that what you would think, you know, if there was a vote that that might, but what the Hebrew Jews were doing was voting with the Grecian Jews to basically say, we are really sorry that your widows felt slighted. And we're going to prove to you that we're genuinely sorry about that. Even if it was just something perceived, if it really wasn't done on purpose. But they, they went along with the Grecian Jews and picked seven Grecian Jewish Christians. Am I saying that all right? Because I'm getting confused in my mind. But the first name is Stephen, Stephanos, um, of whom it is said, oh, this man, I I'm getting so excited studying him. We're going to be talking about him until we break. Um, well, other than when Debbie comes. But uh, he was a man of fullness. He was full of faith. Wouldn't that be a wonderful epitaph to have on your tombstone? A woman of full of faith. I'd love that. He was full of faith. I mean, his faith was rock solid. He had no doubt about it. And also he was full of what? The Holy Spirit. And if you go down to verse 8, you find out that he was full of power. And if you go to verse 10, you're going to find out that he was full of irresistible wisdom. Oh, we're going to learn, out, we're learn something really interesting next week. I'm, I want to tell you now, but I'm going to save it so you come back. <laughs> Uh, we're going to be speaking, you know, it was his very bold, extremely bold message to the Sanhedrin council that served as the final witness to the leaders of Israel. Their final opportunity came in his sermon to, you know, to repent and to repent of their sin of having killed their own Messiah and to turn to him in faith. And how did they react after they heard his sermon? Remember, we, we looked at it last time, they were cut asunder his words cut them, pierced them to the heart, but they gnashed their teeth against him and they wound up killing him. And when they killed Stephen, they sealed their fate. They did, because they represented the whole nation. That spelled doom for Israel. In fact, it was Stephen's death that, and the persecution by the council that followed, because after Stephen was killed, they just broke out in persecution against the Christians. It was that that caused the church finally to be pushed out of the city of Jerusalem and to expand to Judea and then to Samaria and eventually to the uttermost parts of the world. Stephen's short life as a Christian. He wasn't a Christian very long. He was probably a young man. And some people would say, oh, that's such a shame. You know, just a few, maybe months, years as a Christian. But his short life has had such a tremendous impact on the church, even to this very day, that there's no way to underestimate it. And one reason for the impact of his short life is because of the effect it had, not only his life and his wisdom, but his death. The impact his life and death had on one particular man. His name was Saul of Tarsus. And this is what I'm going to share with you next week. Saul and Stephen met several times, even before Saul sat there with the coats and watched Stephen die. 
He, he had irresistible wisdom. His life was, a, and you know, you never know. I was thinking about this yesterday. When you have a group like this, just a few women from the whole community, and you're t- you don't know if you're a little Sunday school class, maybe of three or four kids, you don't know who's out there that might grow up and be just on fire for the Lord and turn the whole world upside down, do you? Stephen didn't know when he died. He did not know the impact he had on Saul of Tarsus. But the reason I say his, the impact of his life goes on today because Saul wrote 13 or 14 of our 27 books in the New Testament. We talk about the writings of Paul all the time. You know, there was a man who could have had a life-changing impact on Saul, and that was his teacher, Gamaliel. But instead, who was the one who had an impact on Saul? The table server, Stephen. Well, the next man mentioned is Philip, not to be confused with the apostle Philip. This is a a different Philip. You know, Stephen fills all of chapter 7. It's all about Stephen in chapter 7. Guess what chapter 8 is all about? Philip. Philip fills chapter 8. Philip, you know, Stephen went from table server to preacher to first church martyr. Philip went from table server in the church of Jerusalem to the first church evangelist. Philip became an evangelist to Samaria. That's in 8, verses 4 to 25. And he also was an evangelist to Ethiopia in verses 26 to 40 of chapter 8. So Stephen was the first church martyr. Philip was the first church evangelist. There's a third man, Prochorus about whom we know very little other than tradition says he was the amanuensis of the Apostle John, which means the scribe. You know, a lot of them had scribes. And they say that Procurus was the one who wrote down the Gospel of John. John spoke it, and Procurus wrote it. Now, whether or not that's true, I don't know, because you can't really put a whole lot of trust in what tradition says. The next three men we know absolutely nothing about. Nicanor, Timon, and Parmenas. All that is known for sure about the last man, Nicholas, is what is told to us. He was a proselyte of Antioch. Now that is really interesting. What does that mean? It means that Nicholas was a Greek-speaking Gentile, okay, Gentile, who converted to Judaism. He was a proselyte of Judaism. Greek-speaking Gentile who um, believed, put his faith in the Jehovah God and became, so to speak, Jewish, a, a Gentile Jew. And then he put his faith in Jesus. So what we, he was was a Gentile convert to Judaism who became a Christian. If that isn't confusing. I mean, he just had everything wrapped together, didn't he? <laughs> what was the result of the church's selection of these seven Grecian Jewish Christian table servers? Did the Lord take something that was potentially a threat to the wonderful testimony of the church, you know, her love and her her unity? Did the Lord take something that was meant for evil and turn it to good? Absolutely he did, because with the addition of seven honest, spirit-filled, wise, Greek-speaking, servant-hearted men to the ministry of the leadership of the apostles, what happened? The church grew. Three great things are given to us in verse 7, and I'm done. First one, the word of God increased. Well, of course it did. Now we have 19 godly men preaching. 
the word of God, ministering. So the word of God increased. Not only did the apostles now have more time to dedicate themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, but they had seven godly men to assist them. And as a consequence of the word of God increasing, the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem how much? Greatly. Greatly. And speaking of great, there was also a great company of the priests who became obedient to the faith. And that's not speaking of the chief priests. They were all Sadducees. This is speaking of the Levitical priests. Um, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, was one such priest. They say that at this time there were some 20,000 priests that served in the temple in 24 different uh, courses, they were called. Um, and, And they didn't all live in Jerusalem. A lot of them lived in Jericho. But they would come to the temple when it was their turn to serve in the temple. But 18 to 20,000 of these guys, and it says a great company of them came to the faith, that's probably thousands, wouldn't you say? Now, if there was anybody at all in Israel who was growing weary of all the blood, of all the animal sacrifices, who would it be? These guys. Don't you think they got sick of slitting throats and all that blood of animals? Ugh, what a horrible job. Uh, So if anyone would appreciate the once-for-all shed blood of Jesus, it would be these guys. Also, if there was anybody in Israel other than the apostles and the original 120 who had figured out the significance of that thick veil that separated the Holy of Holies from view, renting in twain from top to bottom, if anyone got the significance of that tearing at the very moment that Jesus dismissed his spirit, who would it be? These priests. Then they were out of a job anyway, so they needed a new job. <laughs> so it's exciting. Uh, this is it, okay? Verse 7 is the, is, is the climax of the church in Jerusalem. This is as big as it gets, and I don't know how big it is, but it's big. It's just bursting at the seams, which is good. The persecution begins with Stephen, and then it really fires up, but the church needs to explode, doesn't it? They can't just stay there in Jerusalem forever. They needed to do what Jesus said and spread on out. So the persecution is also used for good because it gets the, all the, the disciples and everyone to take the gospel to the rest of the world. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this lesson. It teaches us so much. Thank you. I learned so much this past week. May we also have, like the apostles, may each of us individually have that rock-solid commitment to give ourselves continually, as they did, to prayer. Pray without ceasing. And may we be faithful to the deaconing of the word in our own lives and in the lives of those with which we share, whether it's Sunday school class or our own children or grandchildren, wherever we share, may we be faithful to do that. May it be said of us, Father, that we are women of honest report, that we are women full of the Holy Spirit, full of the power of God, and that we have an irresistible wisdom that only comes from you. We want to be women of passion for you. We want to be women of integrity, women who live to serve you, to redeem our time wisely, to put you first and foremost, and women who also serve others. We love you, and we pray in your name. Amen.